0: Production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.
1: Welcome to the City Club. My name is Tom Lucchese, and I'm a partner at the law firm of Baker & Hostetler, and on behalf of my firm and its partners and its employees, we are happy to be uh, sponsoring today the 2020 High School Debate Championship. We're going to see today two championship debaters. We have Allie Dettelback from Hawkins School and Dev Payrat from University School that are debating for the championship for the North Coast District of the National Speech and Debate Association. On behalf of Baker and Hostetler, we are proud to sponsor this event in memory of our late partner, Patrick Jordan. This is an unusual day and maybe a first in the history of the City Club. Normally, this debate is held before 200 to 220. uh, I was gonna say 220,000 people, not quite that many. uh, 200 to 220 people packed into the room. Uh, Because of the Coronavirus and the limitations on public gatherings and public health and safety concerns. This debate is being held in front of about 40 friends and associates of the debaters, and a few members of the city club. But I know there's a lot of people out on uh, live stream um, that are watching this, including Uh, your fellow debaters from from your schools that you've been competing against all year. And I know they're rooting for you. And especially I want to say hello, not just to them, uh, but to Pat's uh, wife, uh, Sharon Sobel Jordan. And hopefully Sharon's out there. Sharon, if you're out there, send me a text. Um, But Sharon uh, couldn't be here today. This is the first debate uh, in 26 years that she's missed. Um, Our law firm has been sponsoring this in memory of Pat for 26 years. He died uh, in 1995. Um, Pat, I wanted to say a few words about Pat, because the purpose of sponsoring this, in, or- in addition to supporting the students, was to keep Pat's memory alive. Pat was a championship debater. Uh, Pat was a big Irishman, a big, bald Irishman who was larger than life. I can still, I worked with Pat, I had the privilege of working with him a lot uh, before he died. Uh, he was left handed, and when he would debate, He would sweep that left arm around, which was symbolic. It gave him space, because he was a big guy. It gave him space. And it also told you, your arguments were worthless in the face of his better reasoned and more forcefully uh, directed arguments. And this was for the kids that are listening. This is before the internet. So our debates were lively and spirited. And we were not constrained by the facts, because you could not (laughs) go to the internet and check on anything. (laughs) <laughs> and we would debate everything, everything. And Pat loved to argue, and he was a championship arguer. Um, but I want to tell one short story about Pat. I call it the story of Joe. Um, and this, to me, embodies Pat's memory. Uh, Pat was a lawyer at Baker. It was the 1980s. Uh, where Key Tower is now, Rothbard Public Square, hadn't been built yet. My law firm represented the owners of uh, the developers of Key Tower. And Pat's job was to go negotiate with the people that own land that were going to be taken over for the construction of Key Tower. And Pat had one very intense negotiation, which is a debate. One intense negotiation with a restaurant owner named Joe. Joe wanted money for his restaurant. Pat on behalf of the developer wanted to pay less, Joe wanted more and they had intense Debate, intense argument about the value of that restaurant, back and forth, heated exchanges over a course of many, many months. At the end of the day, they reached an agreement. They shook hands, and they were friends for the next decade until Pat died. To this day, 40, 30 years later, I see Joe. He has another restaurant here in Cleveland. He remembers Pat, and he remembers Pat favorably despite their difference of opinion, which they were able to resolve after debate about the merits of their respective positions. And that's a quality that Pat had. You could could hate him in the moment, but in the long run you loved him because he he was honest, he was forthright, he told you what was on his mind and he debated in a logical sense. And that's something that you should cherish and I hope your generation is able to bring back to this country because we've lost that. That's a terrible thing that we've lost. We've lost the ability to talk to each other and debate issues. So in a minute, um, I'm gonna turn the microphone over to Murat Zinaloff. Did I get that right? Close enough, Uh, close. With a name like Lucchese, I I know what it's like to have a difficult name, but um, he is going to explain the Lincoln-Douglas style of debate which you're gonna be seeing on display here. So in memory of Pat and In honor of these two excellent debaters, um, let's get off to a good start and welcome everybody. And here we go.
2: On behalf of the debaters, coaches, and judges here today, as well as the Cleveland debate community as large, I would like to offer our sincerest thanks to the City Club for its continual support of high school forensics over the years. For over 30 years, the City Club has been generous enough to host the season finals in Lincoln-Douglas debate. I know I speak for everyone in the debate community when I express our immense gratitude to Baker Hostetler, which has sponsored the championship for over 20 years in memory of partner Patrick J. Jordan, a highly respected trial lawyer at the firm who died in 1995. Thank you so much for everyone at Baker Hostetler for giving debate this moment in the spotlight. It is an activity that has touched the lives of thousands of Cleveland area teens over the years and hopefully will inspire countless more over the years to come. Today's debate has a panel of three judges, Daniel Doza, a staff attorney at Nueva Luz Urban Resource Center, Mark McCandless, the head coach at Brexville Broadview Heights High School, and Vicky Balzar, who continues to actively serve debate to community after retiring from coaching at Midpark and Magnificent High Schools. The two debaters sitting in front of you on stage today are both incredibly talented and have worked very hard to get here. On my right, Dev Peirat, a sophomore from university school, coached by Mr. P- Peter Paik and James Lewis and Ali Dettelbach on my right, sorry, left, a junior from Hawken, coached by Mr. Bob Schertz. Both Ali and Dev, along with Nehal Shigurupati and William Liu, qualified for the national tournament in June. This is a Lincoln-Douglas debate, which means that competitors must evaluate current political and social issues through a value-based lens. Resolutions in LD look beyond simply the benefits or effectiveness of policies and mandates, but at their fundamental morality or justice. Each debater will present a value, which they claim is the ultimate good to be achieved in the context of the round, a value criterion, a way of clearly measuring who best achieves the value, and a constructive, who best explains how their side best meets the burden of the value criterion. Each debater has a chance to cross-examine the other after the case is initially presented. They also will have opportunities to rebut their opponent's points. Both sides have an equal amount of speaking, cross-examining, and preparation time, but the affirmative has the advantage of speaking first and last, while the negatives comes from longer speeches. The resolution for today's debate will be resolved. Predictive policing is unjust. Congratulations to both debaters on reaching this round today, and let the debate begin.
3: With that, I'll begin. I affirm the resolution resolved, predictive policing is unjust. Thus, my value, the ultimate imperative of today's round, is justice, defined as giving each their due, as all people have intrinsic worth that we ought to respect. The best value criterion, or standard to achieve justice, is reducing structural oppression, defined as the tendency of institutions to promote hierarchies disproportionately harming certain peoples. You prefer this value criterion because when a a group of people are disenfranchised, power disparities occur, and those with power are left to abuse those without it unimpeded. Those without power cannot pursue goals or ends, and ultimately, their value as humans and the dues that they ought to be given are not respected. Thus, the impacts of public policies ought to be distributed evenly. My first contention is that predictive policing is discriminatory. There are four ways in which predictive policing harms minority communities. First, through bias from analysts. Eric Bakke of NYU explains in 2014 that the predictive power of algorithms hinges on both the analyst's role in designing the model and the data input. Analysts take an active role in data mining. This allows analysts to influence which variables algorithms take into account and ingrain their positive and normative decisions into future predictions. The second way is implicit police biases. Predictive algorithms rely on data recorded by law enforcement, and as Rashida Richardson of NYU writes in 2019, Predictive algorithms are built on data produced during periods of flawed, racially biased, and unlawful practices and policies. If predictive policing systems are informed by such data, they cannot escape the legacies of the unlawful or biased policing, pra- policing practices that they are built on. Thus, previous pol- policing pol- biases just remanifest themselves in predictive algorithms, and minority communities are only further stigmatized, creating a feedback loop of discrimination. The third way is active police biases. Matthew Valsic of LSU explains in 2018 that knowing that they are in a prediction area may heighten the awareness of police officers in ways that amplify biases. A minority individual observed in a prediction area may be more likely to be subject to biased police actions than the same individual observed outside of a prediction area. The fourth way is hampering reintegration. As William Wong of Middlesex University explains in 2015, the use of predictive policing could lead to a stigmatization of former criminals who have served their sentence and could therefore undermine their resocialization and reintegration into society. The attention of the police in handling cases of individuals with criminal history might trigger some risk of re-offense. In these four ways, predictive policing has perpetuated biases which has been proved empirically. Dr. Christian Lum writes in 2016, when predictive policing has been implemented, areas with largely non-white and low-income populations experience about 200 times more drug drug arrests than areas outside of these clusters. In contrast, estimates suggest that drug crimes are much more evenly distributed. Ultimately then, predictive policing unfairly discriminates against minority communities and perpetuates structural oppression. My second contention is that predictive policing lacks accountability. Predictive policing algorithms have also evaded democratic checks. This occurs for two reasons. First, they're developed by private corporations. Andrew Ferguson of Washington University explains in 2017 that predictive policing algorithms are built in the private sector, and thus are proprietary technologies belonging to corporations. This means that predictive policing algorithms have managed to avoid oversight of any sort. Second, because these algorithms are too complex. Ferguson further is explaining that the complexity of the algorithms makes it nearly impossible for third parties to check the algorithm for flaws. This is further compounded by machine learning algorithms used by predictive policing technology. According to Scanlon of Brigham Young University in 2019, once these algorithms begin learning, it becomes impossible for even the original programmers to understand the changes made to the processes behind the algorithms. This lack of accountability manifests itself in an accountability gap. Mayor 19 explains that since law enforcers cannot fully understand and interpret the outcomes of the software and deem the outcomes as sufficient input for decision-making, officers cannot deduce biases in the model, and it becomes unclear who is responsible for decision-making. This allows officers to avoid culpability or checks on their behavior. Additionally, this accountability gap also stops real reform in law enforcement. Baku 14 explains that the appearance of a neutral mechanism knocks the wind out of the sails of social justice movements working to redress these wrongs. Police departments can respond to such movements by claiming they have already instituted the desired change, even while that change proves hollow. So ultimately, a lack of accountability and an accountability gap ensure that discrimination against minority communities persists. Further, that absence of oversight makes predictive policing an illegitimate use of power by the state, as it's instituted through an exclusionary po- process. Policies that are implemented in such a way ignore the interest of minorities and perpetuate power disparities. Thus... Even if predictive policing produces positive benefits for communities, it's inherently unjust. My third and final contention is that predictive policing makes policing more difficult for police officers. There are two ways in which the effectiveness of law enforcement is reduced by predictive technologies. First, complex algorithms. According to Mayor 19, if law enforcers do not understand the factors that lead to an increased chance of crime, the effectiveness of their actions might be reduced. Predictions that are derived on algorithms are opaque and hard to interpret. Second, by citizen distrust. When predictive algorithms rely on data reported by citizens rather than by police, they fail to produce benefit. Shapiro 17 explains that foreign-born citizens and non-U.S. citizens are less likely to report crimes that are U.S.-born citizens. Neighborhoods that have large immigrant populations may thus be excluded by the algorithm. Ferguson 17 furthers, writing that crimes like sexual assault, domestic violence, and fraud tend to be underreported. Some communities, frustrated with current policing practices, simply decline to report crimes. Half of all crimes with victims go unreported. Empirically, both of these warrants have been proven. Saunders of the Rand Corporation explains in 2016 that predictive models have identified less than 1% of homicide victims. Ultimately, then, we ought to affirm, as we ought not subject minority populations to policing practices that fail to protect them. With that, I affirm and stand ready for cross-examination.
4: Okay. As soon as everyone's ready for cross ex Okay. Then let's begin. So let's talk about the notion of structural oppression. Sure. Would you agree that for instance, if you are being abused and the government is not doing anything about it, you would be structurally oppressed?
3: How? Well, be more specific than that. Like, how do you mean?
4: Sure. Like if you're being uh, physically abused or sexually abused, for instance, you well, would be right. oppressed. Like, I think
3: the government's obligated to try and stop that from happening.
4: Right. So we can agree that that's going to have a big impact under a framework like yours, correct?
3: Sure. Okay. But I so again, then let's talk I think about what's more important is that we stop the government from perpetuating things that do things. Sure.
4: Unfair. Sure. Let's talk about the contention one about discrimination. Can you give me an estimate of about how many police officers you think there are in a country like the U.S.?
3: I, I, I really don't know, Allie.
4: Okay. But probably more than like probably more than like ten, right? Yeah. Okay. So we can say that, for, for instance, the more people there are, that would increase the amount of biases there are, just because each individual has biases, correct? Sure. Okay. So let's be clear. In a world without predictive policing, we would agree that there is... Okay.
3: Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. This resolution is specifically asking us if predictive policing specifically is unjust. It's not sure. asking us whether or not we ought to eliminate predictive policing, but whether or sure. not it sure. is itself unjust. Sure, I understand that, but we're
4: discussing this as a tool. So let's talk about the tool of predictive policing, right? Would you agree that predictive policing adds, for instance, a scientific or analytical element to the policing process?
3: Sure, but I've shown you in this contention that that's been bad.
4: Okay, wait. So if predictive policing has like been bad in some instances, right? No, no, no. This, is, that... this is not
3: some instances. This is every instance.
4: Okay, but, but that still doesn't answer my question. If something is bad in some instances, or even many instances, or even most instances, does All that instances. mean that it can never be good?
3: Yes, I've given you all instances. All four of my warrants in my first intention are inherent to predictive policing. But
4: what I'm asking you today is whether is, okay, would you agree that we're discussing the tool of predictive policing and whether that tool is intrinsically unjust? Yes. Okay, so then let's talk about that. Is it true that if something has been unjust in many or even most or even all scenarios, does that mean that it can never have the potential to be just?
3: Okay, I think, again, this resolution is asking us, is predictive policing unjust? Not whether it will be, whether it is unjust. Wait a minute,
4: wait a minute. Let's talk about the word just. Is just a time, like, would you say that the word just implies a timeless evaluation, a value judgment about whether or not a tool is intrinsically unjust in and of itself? I'm sorry, what? The word unjust, does that imply we're making a value judgment about whether something in itself is always going to be, is always going to be that unjust?
3: I think the wording of the resolution is implying that predictive policing as it is, whether or not that's unjust. That's what it's asking Why can't
4: we have, for instance, measures that would require a private company to publish, publish their algorithm?
3: Okay, those don't exist, first of all. And right, second but that's of all, not you can't I guarantee you. That's that they not will that's not what exist. I asked you.
4: What I asked you is why is it intrinsic to predictive policing that we have private and secret algorithms?
3: Okay, even if you prove that somehow these algorithms are will be released to the public, you can't prove that those algorithms will still be transparent because they'll okay. be so opaque. Okay.
5: This is the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland. You're listening to this on 90.3 WCPN. Good afternoon. I'm Nick Castell. I'm a reporter with IdeaStream. I'm joined here by William Liu, a freshman at Brexville Broadview Heights High School. We are listening to uh, Ali Dettelbeck of Hawken and Dev Payrat of University School debate the resolution. Predictive policing is unjust. William, I want to take a second here and back up and and ask you to explain for us, what is it that we're listening to right now? What what exactly is Lincoln-Douglas debate, and what, what are our debaters trying to do today?
6: Okay, so basically the debaters are trying to prove whether or not predictive policing is like unjust through like statistics or through um, logical arguments.
5: And so I know that one phrase we've heard our debaters use is value criterion. Can you explain what that means to the, to the average person?
6: Okay, so basically a uh, value criterion is trying to like achieve the value that they're trying to uphold. For example, like um, justice. So they would have a specific way to achieve that value of justice.
5: So we've we've heard uh, we've heard uh, Dev deliver the affirmative argument. Ali has cross examined him. How exactly does a debater end up winning a debate? What are you trying to accomplish in the end?
6: Well, essentially, you're trying to um, win on the arguments and show that you have better arguments with um, statistics, or just show that you have better uh, logical reasoning.
5: So, are you trying to convince the judges here that you are correct, that you have made the right argument, or just that you've made the best argument?
6: Uh, basically, that you've made the best argument, as it's um, more of an objective debate than I'm um, subjective.
5: So, so you don't need to convince judges, for instance, that uh, to to believe what you're arguing. You know, you you don't need them to walk away saying, "Yes, I believe that." the winner of this debate has the, was, was right about this issue.
6: No, I don't think you necessarily need to do that. You just have to prove that you were um, the best debater in that situation.
5: Well, how do you do that? So how do you make the best argument?
6: Um, well, you just want to prove that um, essentially your opponent did not flaw, uh, find like, certain flaws in your argument and that you found certain flaws in theirs.
5: And we'll keep watching for those issues as we return to the debate.
6: So just for a
4: brief off-time roadmap, I'm going to begin by reading my constructive and then I'll respond to Deb's case. Is everybody ready? Okay, I'll begin. I negate, and I have the same framework as my opponent. However, I offer one observation. In order for my opponent to prove that predictive policing is unjust, they must show that it is in, that its intrinsic characteristics, rather than the ways in which it is applied, are fundamentally unjust. For instance, a knife can be used to stab someone, but it can also be used to cut bread so we would not call a knife unjust. Contention one is helping victims of domestic violence. Predictive policing algorithms can be used by police officers to predict which households are likely to fall into severe domestic violence and by helping the victims to seek safety. Price finds in 2013 that the district attorney's office developed an assessment which acted as an algorithm. Several risk factors are associated with an increased risk of homicides of people in violent relationships. Officers were able to automatically trigger certain protocols based on risk factors including a call or referral to the domestic violence shelter hotline. The officers involved may immediately call a domestic violence counselor or take other positive steps to protect the victim. Predictive policing is vital because devastatingly, possessing just one of the risk factors in the algorithm made women 20 times more likely to be murdered. Unfortunately, Price concludes that nearly a third of the victims who speak to a counselor because of this program eventually seek a protective order, shelter, or other protective services. Thus, predictive policing is the best way to aid victims in imminent danger. This is important because victims of domestic abuse are some of the most uh, structurally oppressed individuals, so we must prioritize their dues first in order to be just. Contention two is protecting the vulnerable from predators predictive policing is a vital tool against predators. According to Kim Rossmo, rapists, among other serious offenders, share behavioral characteristics that are innate to all hunters. The concept of using geospatial and other tactical information to construct behavioral patterns has been tested with evidence used to convict criminals. So predictive policing can assist the police by leveraging the larger quantity of psychological information about the people who commit high-volume crimes and use it to predict their actions the impact of predicting predators' patterns are staggering. McCainy 18 found predictive analytics help sheriff's offices to be able to better identify and monitor high-risk offenders since it began using the system. In Vancouver, for instance, a predator followed girls on their way home from school and sexually assaulted them in wooded areas. With traditional policing, a joint task force of more than 100 officers assembled, but the months-long investigation failed. Meanwhile, the predator struck again. Then they switched over to predictive policing conducting advanced geospatial analysis of the attacks, the task force pinpointed a single suspect. Empirically for rapists, predictive policing has an accuracy of 88%. Thus, predictive policing helps victims of predators who are some of the most vulnerable members of our society and the most structurally oppressed. So to prioritize the least well off, and because predictive policing cannot be generally unjust if it helps these people, I negate. Now onto my opponent's case. So the winner of this round is going to be the person who best minimizes structural oppression. But realize that in this round, even if my opponent is proving that even in the majority of cases the knife is being used to stab people, that doesn't mean it can't be used to cut a sandwich. And that's what this round is about. This round is about proving that predictive policing can be a vital tool that's used to help these people. So with that, let's go to the contention one of discrimination. The first reason he gives for this is analyst bias. But the main response here comes from UCLA in 2018 where they did a meta study of predictive policing and they found that actually, when in areas that use predictive policing, there weren't more instances of racial profiling. What this proves is that even if there's an analyst bias, when it actually becomes implemented, the racism does not increase from the already racist criminal justice system that we have. But let's go to the second and third reasons he gives for this. He talks about impl- implicit police bias and active police biases. And there are a few responses to here. First, on the the whole idea, realize that these police officers are still bound by rules like probable cause. These people will still have a trial, so even if there's some sort of semblance of racism, we still have the rest of the criminal justice system to kick in. But the second response is that you can look to Ensign in 2017, who explains that right now, many community systems are using black box methods in order to make sure the system becomes less racist and less biased. That's why Lindsay in 2018 corroborates that there are systems right now who have edited their algorithms to make them less racist and to make the implementation of them less racist. But let's go to why you actually vote for me off of this very issue, which comes from Chan in 2016, who explains that every single time an algorithm is going to be better than human discretion. What we have to look at is that what predictive policing does is it creates a far less bias. This is for two reasons. First, there are more police officers than there are algorithms. What that means is that a world where we don't have predictive policing or a world where we say it's unjust is a world where we say it is better to have 40,000 different police officers with their own independent biases making their own judgments. This is bad simply on an issue of having more biases. But the second reason why predictive policing actually improves the situation is because it's far easier to reprogram an algorithm than to reprogram people. That's why Lindsay in 2018 actually concludes that what we've done with predictive policing is we've reanalyzed the system and made sure the analytics we put into it are actually less biased. That's why predictive policing is a crucial tool in minimizing structural oppression. Then, on the fourth issue, he talks about reintegration. A couple things here. First, look to Mayer in 2019, which says that predictive policing minimizes crime. This is because if we put more police officers in more high-crime areas, we are actually going to decrease the amount of crime but that's important because American progress finds in 2012 that when we decrease crime in an area, we inevitably lead to increasing greater economic opportunity in that same area because now people are willing to invest. This means that reintegration is going to be better improved in the negative world because we decrease crime, we stop the issue at its sources, and we actually increase economic opportunity for all people. Let's go to the contention too about accountability. He first talks about private corporations, and I want to make a really important point here. Realize that this is not inherent. There is no reason why you can't vote NEG, an and then we can start to publicize the algorithms. He doesn't give you any reason why the tool of predictive policing inherently must be a secret. But then, let's go on to the second reason he gives you about a complexity, et cetera. Look to Gorshin in 2017, who explains that right now, some companies, um, like a lot of predictive policing companies, are moving towards publishing their algorithms. Not only that, but they're being covered by news sources who are willing to explain the algorithms to the public. This means the whole idea of it being opaque doesn't apply because right now the move is to publicize it. But let's go on to the idea of illegitimate power. Realize, I would argue, it's a good thing if we, publish, if we publish some algorithms. However, it's a really bad thing if we publish the predator algorithms so those people know exactly how we're going to catch them. This is really bad for structural oppression. But then let's go on to the third point he makes here about police efficacy. And citizen distrust. Realize that you can look to Rand in 2016, who explains that we actually increase community relations when we make an area more safe. This is because people feel more safe, more able to talk to the police officers, which actually is going to increase citizen trust in the long term. Overall, because all of the problems he mentions are either problems that aren't intrinsic to predictive policing, or, or things that predictive policing is actually helping to mitigate I negate. And I'm open for cross-ex. <clears throat> all right.
3: Um, judges, are you guys ready? Opponent? Yeah. All right, so with that, uh, let's begin. So let's talk about your first contention about domestic violence. So yeah. how does predictive policing uh, like like predict domestic violence?
4: Sure. So predictive. So essentially, what happens in the in the status quo is that there is a survey that goes out to households in which there hasn't yet been a homicide yet relating to this, and the essentially it's a series of questions that prompts the victims to answer, and then from that, the answers go into an algorithm to determine whether or not there is a high risk of a homicide occurring.
3: Okay. Sure. So like, how effective has that been?
4: Sure. So what I explain in my case is that it's been really, really effective as one in three of these victims have then go- gone to seek counseling, or shelter, or a protective order that actually stops this violence from happening in their house. Okay,
3: but how many of those victims have actually answered the survey?
4: I- okay, so in insofar as we're caring about structural oppression in this round, right, we are both advocating for minorities. Yeah. I don't think it makes much sense to say that, like, to. to talk about the size of the minority I'm advocating for. But what I'm telling you in this round is that there's one third of the victims that actually are involved in this program actually go to that next step. That shows it was effective in curtailing the problem before it even happened.
3: So let's talk about curtailing the problem before it even happened. Yeah. So you're saying that there was no domestic abuse, and they stopped that domestic abuse before it happened?
4: Well, wait a minute. I don't have to say that I'm solving all of domestic abuse. No, no, no. I'm not But if I can that. show that I've stopped much of domestic homicide, I would say that's a pretty big benefit. That's fine,
3: but I'm asking you how you came to the conclusion that you stopped domestic abuse if it never happened.
4: Okay. So essentially we ask a series of questions on a survey that determine if there's already been slightly abusive tendencies in the household. But the real predictive policing aspect comes in where we predict there's about to be a homicide in that household, so we help the victims to seek safety. That is where we stop the domestic abuse incidents.
3: Okay, let's move on to your second contention where you talk about like predators. Yeah. So clarify exactly like what your like what this contention is about.
4: Sure. So predator the predators argument is essentially that there are some people who either stalk other individuals, who assault them, and that predictive policing is really effective at predicting, at using geospatial analysis in order to predict where that person is going to go next oh. and how we can best catch that so person. So how do
3: they use geospatial analysis to yeah. predict individual behavior?
4: Yeah. So essentially, what I tell you in the evidence I give you from Rossmo is that um, there are some very specific patterns that are specific to hunters. I'll give you one. For instance, there is a very large tendency that if you are a predator, you are going to do, you're going to hunt. Kind of a far, sort of far away from your house, but not that far away, right? From that, they create a radius for you and they actually monitor you as an individual before you do another crime.
3: Okay, that's fine. So let's move on to actually my set of flow. I want to ask sure. you about a few of these pieces of evidence. So first, yeah. you read this U.S. UCLA evidence. So, yeah. like, what was this a study of?
4: So, this was a study of when we use predictive policing and it analyzed predictive policing as a whole and right, it right, came right. But out but what that empirically. City was this a study of? It's predictive policing as a whole.
3: As a whole? Okay. Finally, okay, so how do how do you make these algorithms less racist, I guess?
4: Sure. So what I would say is right now we're using black box methods. That comes from Ensign 2017. And second of all, what we do is we actually edit for the bias and make sure that doesn't occur in the next round.
0: Okay.
5: You're listening to the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. That was Dev Payrat cross-examining Ali Dettelbeck, I'm Nick Castell from IdeaStream. I'm here with William Liu at Brecksville Broadview Heights High School. We've heard so far in this debate uh, a lot of citations to studies, research that's been done at various universities. Could you explain for us here, how do you do the research necessary to, to be able to cite those sources live in a debate like that?
6: Well, um, essentially what you want to do is basically look up like one side of the topic, for example, predictive policing is just or predictive policing is unjust. Then you would look at some sources that would say on one side of the opinion, and then you could use those as citations.
5: And do you basically have all these facts memorized when you're going into a debate?
6: Um, no, I don't think very many people can do that. But um, what they usually do is they have like a block sheet, for example, of having like the citations already written down to use during round.
5: And so uh, something people may not be aware of is that as a debater, you're actually preparing to argue either side of this, either affirmative or negative, right? Yeah. How do
6: you do that? So essentially you want to prepare both sides um, before the uh, tournament or event you're going to and make sure that you know both sides and either uh, opinion.
5: And so when you're walking into a tournament, which happened on Saturday mornings, by the way, uh, do you know which side you're going to be taking that day?
6: Um, no, you uh, like essentially what happens is right before the, um, like right when the round is posted, they'll tell you what side you're going to be on and what side you're going to do. Unless it's like a higher or like finals round, they'll have like a basically have like a coin toss like in this event, and um, only sometimes do they have that.
5: And so this this particular resolution, predictive policing is unjust. Have the debaters seen this this case before?
6: Um, no, I don't think so, but um, yeah, that's all.
5: But, but typically, you know, in, in a debate uh, in you know, a, a school year, y- you may see the same topic come up a few different times.
6: Um, I don't think so. During okay. this um, school year, we had um, all different topics throughout um, ranging. Uh, different time frames could
5: you give me some examples of, of what other things have you debated this year
6: for example like um, the elimination of nuclear arsenals whether or not we should do it or the elimination of fossil fuel subsidies those are some um, examples of other topics
5: so you're typically debating pretty heady questions it yeah. sounds like what's that like
6: um, well like sometimes there's like things that are a bit like more obscure like for example everyone mostly everyone knows about nuclear arsenals but not not as much people know about fossil fuel subsidies, so it'd be a bit harder to research like, those smaller topics.
5: And so do you typically, as you're researching a topic, uh, develop a, a favorite side? And we may get back to that question in just a second as we return to the debate.
3: All right, so briefly off time. In the speech, I'm gonna be going over the affirmative and then the negative. Uh, are all my judges ready? My opponent? Yeah. All right, with that, I'll begin. So my opponent concedes the framework. So really in Mm -hmm. today's round, what you're looking to is reducing structural oppression, helping the least well off. So let's move on to my first contention about discrimination. Now, she just kind of gives you a lot of overviews, and she concedes the individual warranting here. So she's conceded, first of all, that analysts insert their bias into algorithms. Second, that data is fraudulent and it negatively impacts minorities. Third, that police officers uh, have heightened awareness when they go into prediction areas. And finally, that police officers hamper the reintegration of former offenders into society. This is going to be really big in today's round. Now, let's move on to those overviews that she does give you. First, she tells you that, well, the rest of the criminal justice system will just solve for these issues. But realize that you're forcing minority communities to go through that criminal justice system in the first place when they shouldn't have. So this is still harming the minority, even if they get off of their sentence. Further, she gives you this N-Sign 17 card and tells you that, well, we just made algorithms less racist. That's not what Ensign does. What Ensign is doing is using an urn model to take weight, for if a certain area is over-policed, it takes the weight of the amount of policing in that area and turns it down and makes it so all areas have the same weight of the amount of policing. So really, this just makes predictive algorithms ineffective because you're not predicting policing in certain places. All you're doing is equally distributing officers across the city. Then she just says that, well, it's better to have police officers uh, with an algorithm than with their own biases. But realize that this resolution is not asking us about implementation. Instead, it's asking us if predictive policing itself is unjust, so you drop that. Now let's move on to my second contention, where I talk to you about accountability. Now, as an overview, she attacks by saying, well, we can just publicize these algorithms, but we can't publicize algorithms about predators. That's the issue here. If we publicize these algorithms, then they're ineffective because people will see the algorithms and just move crime. Or if we don't publicize these algorithms, they're inherently unjust because you're effectively silencing the voices of minorities. This is a double bind that my opponent has to choose in. And in her her next speech, she's gonna have to choose one of the two. Now, she drops my first warrant completely. And this shows you that proprietary technology ensures that predictive technologies will never be released to the public. And also on my second warrant she just says that well companies will just explain these machine learning algorithms. But that's not enough because what this is telling you is that these companies don't even understand their own algorithms after the machine learning systems get to work. This is huge, flow that through. She also drops the accountability gap so realize that we can't hold officers accountable for their actions in the negative world. And finally, and this is really important, she drops my entire third contention which shows you that it's much harder for police officers to actually police when they have predictive policing. The two reasons I gave you were first that that algorithms are too complex and they don't understand them, and second, that crime is underreported. This is going to be really key when I move on to my opponent's side of the flow right now. Now, on that side of the flow, she first gives you this observation, but remember, all my warrants were intrinsic reasons why predictive policing is unjust, so this observation really doesn't weigh against my case. Now, on her, both of her contentions, these are both reliant on the idea that predictive algorithms can actually predict where crime is occurring. And she conceded my third contention, which shows you that they can't predict where crime is occurring. First of all, because officers don't know what they're doing when they go to a location where they're, where, they've, where crime has been marked. And second of all, because it fails, because many, many crimes are underreported. Specifically, the crimes my opponent's talking about. So my opponent's failing to actually promote these things, to actually uh, mitigate structural oppression in domestic violence and predatory situations. Then you also realize that she drops the empiric evidence that I gave you that showed you that only 1% of victims were actually predicted by predictive policing. This is huge because I'm showing you here that neither of these contentions can actually flow because you can't actually predict the victims. Now, furthermore, let's move on to my opponent's individual contentions. Her first contentions about domestic violence, but realize this is reliant on victims answering the surveys. Their abusers can easily stop them from answering the surveys, so there's really no impact here. And her second contentions is about predators, but realize this requires blatant, blatant privacy violation and stalking of individuals, which ultimately creates a dystopian police state. So with that, I affirm. If
5: you're listening to the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland on ninety point three WCPN. That was Dev Payrat of University School uh, arguing in the affirmative, this resolution, predictive policing is unjust. I'm Nick Castell from IdeaStream. I'm here with William Liu, a freshman at Brecksville, Broadview Heights. I do want to take a moment to let our listeners at home know that typically this room is packed to the gills with high school debate teams. Today we have a a much uh, more reduced audience of a, a bit under 50 people, I believe, as a precaution against the spread of COVID-19, and our debaters each have their own individual lecterns, so they're not sharing microphones either. Um, I think I was asking before, William, uh, when you're preparing for a debate as you're learning both sides of the issue, do you ever become tied to one side or the other and just feel much more convinced by either the, the affirmative or the negative?
6: Well, um, I don't think that happens really often, but sometimes when the um, sides are really one-sided, your um, opinion could get changed.
5: And, and do you ever feel like you have to get up there and, and make the best argument you can for something you, you just don't believe in?
6: Yeah, sometimes you really don't believe in like a certain side of the argument, but you have to argue it anyway.
5: Could could you describe a little bit about what's that like? I mean, how do you still go out there and make your best case if in your heart you think this isn't right?
6: Well, um, you basically have to look at a point of view in which you just have to argue the argument itself and you don't have to actually like believe in it. So you just have statistics and logical arguments of another side that you don't believe
5: in. Do you feel like you've learned anything from that process of of sort of gaming out how different arguments might be made?
6: Yeah, um, you get to learn like um, the other side of an argument or see how like other people see a certain side of the argument.
5: Now, I think I said before, uh, often these debates happen on Saturday mornings. Can you describe what, what's that like for people who may not be familiar?
6: Well, sometimes it's like kind of hard to wake up because it's usually like at six or seven in the morning. But eventually, like <laughs> one or two hours in, you usually wake up.
5: And these, are, and these are usually like day-long events, right? You're spending your whole Saturday, basically, at yeah, these basically. tournaments.
6: Yeah, and after um, the tournament, you're usually really tired and you don't really want to do anything else.
5: Well, our debaters here are still going strong, and we will return to the debate right now.
4: All right, so the order of the speech is just going to be going down the affirmative case, and then I'll move on to the negative side where I will give some key voting issues for the round, which will kind of include some of the answers he made to my case. Is everybody ready? Okay. Then let's begin on my opponent's contention one about discrimination. He makes one key concession here that takes this contention out on its face. Remember the UCLA study I give you at the top, which explains to you that actually, when we analyze empirical incidents of using predictive policing, we don't see more instances of profiling. We don't see more instances of racism. This means that whatever he tells you in his next speech, you cannot possibly vote for him off of this contention because I've already shown you that predictive policing is not what makes the difference. But then, let's go on. He says that we're forcing minorities through the system, and he says that we're taking, he says that all Ensign says is that we're taking the weight into account. But you don't even have to buy the ensign evidence to still believe what I'm saying. Remember, I gave you other ev- evidence from Lindsay in 2018 that says that right now in the status quo, we have algorithms that are being edited right now to take out the bias. What this means is that everything he's gonna tell you about the feedback loop and implicit bias is e- something we can edit. Remember back to what I tell you about the knife. Insofar as he can't prove it's a quality intrinsic to the knife, he can't prove we should. he can't prove it's unjust. And what I've shown you is this is actually something we can edit for. But even more crucially, I've shown you why why this issue of discrimination is actually a reason why predictive policing can be helpful, can be just. He responds to the uh, explanation and the weighing I give you by saying that we're not talking about implementation. But he misses the argument entirely. What the argument is, is that predictive policing cannot possibly be unjust if it is a tool that we're using to combat structural oppression. In this way, it has helped to minimize structural oppression for two key reasons. First, there's more police officers than there are algorithms. That means that necessarily my world is the world of far less biases, and he doesn't respond to that. Responding to it in his next speech would be too late. But secondly, realize that it's far easier to edit a machine than to edit a person's biases. That's why predictive policing is an objectively good tool that we can use in order to mitigate structural oppression in order to make sure that we don't have as many biases, we don't have as much discrimination. With that, let's go on to the reintegration. I just wanna make it clear that he drops one key argument that's really important here. Remember. In a world of predictive policing, we are decreasing crime. That means we increase economic opportunity, which is really, really important, because if you truly believe that we should help marginalized communities, the best way to do it is set them up for long-term economic success that is sustainable. But let's go on to the contention, too, about accountability. My opponent says that I'm in a double bind because if we publicize the algorithm, it becomes ineffective. But he's, not, but he's not really responding to the argument I'm making. I'm saying that, sure, in the status quo, we have some algorithms published. That is already evidence I give you from Gershon in 2017. However, I'm saying it's good that we don't have all of them published like he would say, because, for instance, we don't want predators to know how we find them to make that algorithm less effective. In that way, it is clear that we can strike a balance. This isn't a contradiction at all. But then let's go to the contention three, which I actually do respond to, the idea of of, uh, decreasing police efficiency. Remember, I tell you that we can actually increase community relations because communities feel more safe when we have predictive policing, which uniquely increases a communication between them. He's saying that it makes it harder to police, but he doesn't respond to the argument, which clean concedes that it's actually easier for police to do their jobs if we have a tightened community relationships, which we inevitably do if we have more safety and more trust among those communities. That means that the algorithm of predictive policing is a tool that we can be, that can be used to do just things because it increases community relations, making it easier for police to do their jobs. But let's go on to my case. He responds to my observation about essentially what I give you about the knife by saying that all of the benefits he gives you in his case are intrinsic. But he drops some key arguments on his side that would indicate it's not intrinsic. Remember the evidence I give you from UCLA. Remember the evidence I give you to show that some companies are publicizing. At this point, he has to stand up here and prove to you that in his next speech, every single element that he talks about is intrinsically bad at predictive policing, and he's already made the concessions to prove that's not true. With that, let's go to the first key voting issue in this round, which is going to be the idea of domestic violence. My opponent says that it simply relies on the fact that uh, prediction is effective. But he doesn't respond to the turn I give you on his side, which explains that we increase community relations, making it uniquely more effective. If people feel safer, they'll feel more comfortable talking to the police, they'll feel more comfortable reporting their instances, and that is logic he hasn't responded to. Then he also says that only 1% has been predictive. But remember, we're both advocating for minorities here. That's why we're trying to minimize structural oppression. It doesn't make sense for him to say that, uh, that my minority is too small. And then, let's go on to the contention too, where he simply says this is a privacy violation. And this is the second key voting issue of the idea of predators. But this is a really, really problematic. Because if my opponent is suggesting that we should respect the privacy of predators, I would say that is absolutely untrue. We should violate their privacy in order to stop them from like, from being sexually abusive. And that is what I tell you, is that predictive policing is a vital tool in combating structural oppression because it uses geospatial analysis in order to predict uh, in order to predict where predators are going to go and it stopped them. Remember the example I give you of Vancouver, for instance, where girls were assaulted in a wooded area and tr- traditional policing was not enough to solve it. It was only once we used the tool of predictive policing that we could solve it. At this point, I have given you two clean reasons why, under the framework of structural oppression, you are voting from my side, but let me give you a third. The third key voting issue, and where you sign your ballot for the negative, is on the idea of bias. Remember the key weighing I provide for you that he never really responds to, which is that insofar as predictive policing is a tool that uniquely decreases the amount of biases we have. From 40,000 different police officers to one algorithm, or a couple algorithms, that means there are less biases on face. That means if you're voting on the issues of racism, if you're voting on the issues of minorities, you're automatically voting negative. But the second reason I give you is because it is far easier to edit an algorithm, to edit a machine, than to edit a person. And that is the crux of the negative argumentation. I show you in this round that predictive policing is a tool that we can actually use to be just, to minimize structural oppression by just decreasing the amount of biases on net. So for these reasons, and the many more reasons I give you on the other side of the round, I urge you to decrease structural oppression by negating.
5: This is the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. You were just listening to Ali Dettelback deliver the negative argument. Uh, we will soon hear from Dev Payrat, a sophomore at university school. They're debating the resolution, predictive policing is unjust. I'm Nick Castell from Ideastream. I'm here with William Liu at Brecksville Broadview Heights High School. Could you explain, when, when you get to the later part of the debate here, you've done your cross-examinations, you've delivered some speeches, what are you trying to do at the end to bring things home and, and make your point?
6: So essentially, you want to like wrap things up by showing like on what points you like definitely won, on what points your opponent didn't address. And that like certain points that flowed through the round, basically, and that's how you want to establish your key voting issues.
5: Well, who gets to determine the terms of, of you know the the frame of the debate, which points you're trying to make and which points you won or lost? Isn't that up to the judges?
6: Well, I mean, certainly on like the flow, on which you like take notes of your opponent's case, you can see like whether or not they addressed your actual arguments or whether or not they addressed your attacks on their case. You can see that um, on your notes.
5: So you can see that on your notes. And when you say flow, could you describe what that means for people who so aren't that, familiar?
6: That's basically just like a fancier term for saying like debate notes, or like basically you take notes on your side, and you take notes on your opponent's side.
5: And we will now return to the debate.
6: OK, so in this speech, I'm
3: just going to be giving you guys key voting issues. Uh, judges, are all of you ready? Opponent? All right, with that, I'll begin. So in today's debate, what you realize is that the negative is presenting you a step towards dystopia, whereas the affirmative is presenting you a step and a block towards that dystopia. And realize that, and the second thing you have to realize in today's debate is that just policies must first of all be transparent, and second of all, non-discriminatory. And predictive policing algorithms fail to do both. First, uh, being non-discriminatory. This idea, uh, that's my first key voting issue. This idea that predictive policing is making a bad situation worse. Now, realize that my opponent conceded my entire third contention, where I explained to you how predictive policing algorithms are actually extremely ineffective. And when I cross-applied this to her case, she just made these two small responses. The first was that, well, she says that, well, my minority is not, I'm saying that her minority is too small. What I told you is that that impact doesn't occur at all. Because remember, on her first contention, it's completely reliant on victims actually filling out whatever survey. That doesn't happen. And then on her second contention, she tries to respond by saying, well, I'm telling you to respect the privacy of predators. But remember, I already told you that predictive policing is ineffective at actually predicting people. Remember the 1% statistic. It fails at actually predicting 1% of homicide victims. So realize that we're not monitoring predators. We're not invading the privacy of predators. We're invading the privacy of innocent people. Furthermore, realize that on my first contention, she completely drops all four of my individual warrants and just gives you a bunch of overviews. So let's talk about those overviews. The first one, the first big overview she gives you is that, well, we can just edit machines, not people. But the only actual way she gave you to edit the machine is to make the crime statistics flat, to spread police out evenly. So then that's not predictive policing and there's no benefit for it and it's completely ineffective. The other overview she gives you is, well, less crime is good because it'll mend relationships with minority communities and police. But realize that less crime comes at the cost of discrimination. She conceded the impact I gave you from LUM16 that told you that there was 200 times more drug arrests due to predictive policing. That's huge. So so let me move on to my second key voting issue and the biggest issue in today's round, which is this idea of transparency and how predictive policing fails to be transparent. Now realize that if you buy my opponent's case, you're buying that we're putting tape over the mouths of minorities. We are stopping for minorities from speaking up and actually uh, because of this lack of transparency. So let's talk about that entire contention. First, she just says there's no double bind because, well, we can strike a balance between just not publicizing the ones about predators and just publicizing everything else. But if we publicize anything, everything else, realize that it becomes completely ineffective because people will just move crime. And further, even if you buy that we just keep the certain algorithms private, it's still unjust because the public doesn't know how the algorithm works. And so realize that there's an accountability gap where officers avoid culpability and checks on their behavior and are allowed to continue abusing minorities, Remember, this is the biggest impact in today's round and the one that ultimately wins me it because realize that she almost completely concedes this idea of transparency. So with that, I affirm.
5: This, you've been listening to the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. For those of you who couldn't see this at home, they ended that debate with a fist bump and not a handshake. And now we'll give it over to Dan Walthrop, who will uh, close out this segment here. Thank you very much,
0: Nick. I'm going to stand off the stage. Usually I stand up there with you, but um, given what's going on, you guys stand up. Get, get back there. Everybody <laughs> give them a round of applause again, please. Great debate. So um, there was oh, there were, there were some standing ovations there. I just want to note that for both of you. Um, uh, so while the judges are finishing tallying their results, we're going to have just a, an informal conversation. Um, do, you have, uh, do either of you have, like, political or legal aspirations?
4: I definitely do.
0: Really? What's yeah. that about, Allie? I...
4: I <laughs> Allie Daddleback.: <laughs> um, Yeah, I definitely want to be a lawyer and then maybe one day go into politics.
0: Really? Really? How interesting! What what a shocker there! Do you want to Do you want to mention who your dad is or?
4: Oh, my Steve over there. Yeah, yeah,
0: erstwhile candidate. Yeah, Dev. What about you? No. Um,
3: no. I, uh, I I've always really loved like creative writing, um, and that's kind of like something that I've um, been pursuing like my whole life. So, or not my whole life since like second grade, but yeah.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, are we ready? are Are we ready for the for the the announcements? We are almost ready for the announcements. Um, well, as we prepare, and before we um, and before we announce the winners, uh, can we give our competitors one more round of applause? You both did such a great job. And now I'd like to invite our, our good friend Tom Lucchese of Baker Hostetler to join me up in front here, um, or I'll walk over this way. And Tom, uh, would you, are we starting with the runner up? Or are we starting with the? Uh, It's either, well, I know there's only two. It's really not very confusing after that moment, but go ahead, Tom, who is our winner?
1: And the winner is, well, first of all, you both did a great job. (laughs) So another round of applause for both of our competitors. And by decision of the judges, the winner is Allie Dettelbeck.
0: Congratulations. And a round of applause too for Dev Pirat, our runner-up, our second place. And congratulations to to Hawkins School and to University School. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being a part of our forum today. This has been a very special uh, special forum. I actually have a script I just realized that I'm supposed to mention and perhaps read. Um, But this has been a very special forum. um, And again, uh, in the midst of this uh, coronavirus challenge, I'm really delighted that we were able to provide a forum, provide a platform for our debaters. Um, I do wanna mention, finally, as well, sorry, I'm just spreading this all over the place, Um, but our High School Debate Championship is sponsored by Baker Hostetler in memory of Patrick J. Jordan. We have many of Patrick's Baker Hostetler colleagues with us today, and we're grateful for their continued support of this debate. And as you know, we're intent on keeping the community connected even as we battle COVID-19 and we received our first continue the conversation contribution earlier this week from Mark Ross. He's managing partner, PWC here in Cleveland, also on our board and he's, and that contribution is helping us continue to convene our community for online conversations during this challenging time. It's important that we all stay connected. And with his gift, Mark is hoping to inspire other city club members and friends to step up and make similar contributions to support our mission. From a business perspective, of course, PWC, is a professional services firm equally committed to supporting the communities that they in which they do business. I wanna thank our, our students who are here from local high schools, their college, their teachers and others, and the families of our students. Student participation city club forums, forums are made possible by contributions from the Char and Chuck, Family Found, Chuck Fowler Family Foundation and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from other sponsors listed in our program. That closes our 2020 High School Debate Championship. Thank you debaters, thank you members and friends of the City Club with special thanks to our members who make our work possible. You can support our mission online at cityclub.org. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Stay healthy, be kind, and, um, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you so much.
1: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
0: Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.